0: For those of you who haven't been around for a while or are new here, we end each of our periods of silence by saying together, Lord, hear our prayer. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to meet as a community and to worship you. As we open ourselves up to you in prayer, we take a moment to quiet our hearts and to invite you to meet us this morning, to encourage and comfort, to challenge and change us. Thank you that you are closer than the air that we breathe. Thank you that there is nowhere that we can flee from your presence. Together. Lord, hear our prayer. God, we confess that we have gotten things wrong, that we have not relied on your grace to help us, and so we need you to draw us back to you and to transform us. Would you forgive us for not paying attention to the ways that you are always present? Would you forgive us for self sufficiency? Would you forgive us for not trusting you? We take a moment to confess our sins and to receive again your loving kindness that is new every morning. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. We take a moment to pray for ourselves and for those we love. Would you bring comfort to those who are suffering losses and walking through grief? Would you sustain those who need your provision? Would you show yourself to those who feel like they have seemed invisible to you or you have seemed invisible to them for a long, long time? Would you guide and direct those who cannot see the future? And would you reveal to us again your faithfulness as a community as we go through a period of transition? We ask you for what we need. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. Thank you, God, for the story of your faithfulness, the scriptures, which remind us of all the ways we humans get it wrong and all of the ways you continue to broaden the scope of the plot to include us. It's amazing. And as we listen this morning to the ancient story of Naaman, We ask that by your Spirit, you would span the distance of time and space and bring us the message we need to hear this morning. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus.
1: Amen. It's been a while since uh, I've been my face pointed at your face, your face pointed at my face, saying words from the Bible. I'm glad to be doing that today. I want to say before I get started here, um, you know, we're in good hands. Uh, we, we've got a great board. We've got good staff. Um, the Free Methodist Church, that's where I work. Um, uh, we know how to do pastoral transitions. And I want to say we're in good hands. Joe left well. We have lots of health. And this is going to be a good process. It might feel a little scary, but it's going to be a good process. This is going to be good for us, and I think we're going to wind up uh, in a really nice place at the end of this. So, if you're feeling apprehensive at all, don't. Don't. That's all I got to say about that. I don't know. That ended weird. Okay. Um, does anybody know where my mark is, where I'm supposed to start and stop here? You know how I wander. You know how I do. Um, all right, I'm just going to pretend these cracks on the stage are the, are the edges. Am I? That's good? All right. Probably something you want to check out beforehand. Anyway, um, uh, all right. So what are we doing? Yes, right, I'm preaching a sermon. Okay, we are, uh, over the summer, we're doing a sermon series covering first and second kings but covering a specific part of that narrative okay and this morning I wanted to teach you a Bible study skill um, that I use all of the time okay and it's just a, a simple way of thinking about the Bible and thinking about your relationship with the Bible okay and it's called the The three worlds approach to scriptural interpretation, okay? You ready for this? The three worlds approach. And so when we think about the scriptures, we need to think about three worlds. So there is the world that is behind the text, okay? So this is the historical circumstances behind the writing that you're reading, There is always a reason that people are inspired to write something down. And often, that reason is key to the content. So in the New Testament, in specific, this happens all the time. Because the New Testament is often a letter. And there's a reason that the apostle wrote that letter. And then knowing that reason helps us understand the content. Does that make sense? Okay, then there is the world of the text. So there is there is what is going on, what genre or genry, as the French say? Um, what style? What is the basic structure? They don't say that, okay. Kids, they don't say that. That's that's not what they say. Um, what is the basic structure of the narrative? What is the content? What are some of the style pieces that the author uses? Um, and, and, and today we're going we're gonna to get into a little bit of that. And then finally, it's the world in front of the text. So this is the world that you have to look through as you approach the Bible. So this is what's going on in your life. This is, did you have a fight in the car with the kids on the way to church stuff? It is what happened at work this week. It is what's going on in the news this week. That's the world in front of the text. And all three of these worlds help us understand what it is that God is trying to say to us. Because every time you approach the scriptures, God is revealing something of God's self to you. And so there is something God wants to say to us today, and we're going to we're going to keep these three worlds separate and then you're going to see how they all come together at the end. Does that make sense? You guys follow me so far? Okay. So, let's talk about the world behind the text. So, when was the book of 1st and 2nd Kings collected and written? What was their world like? Well, most scholars would suggest a person or even more likely, a group of people, were actually the authors of this book. It's assembled from various sources. And most scholars believe it was written during the time of the exile. So, what is the exile, you might ask? Well, the OT follows this basic flow of events. So you have the deep history, that's the stuff in Genesis, that's your Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah stuff. And then you have the fathers of the promise. So that's beginning with Abraham. And then you have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You have slavery in Egypt and the Exodus. Then you have the taking of the promised land. And then immediately, you have the losing of the promised land. As soon as Israel held on to it, it seemed like it was slipping through the grasp. And so in the losing of the promised land, they go into exile. They're captured by another country. First, the kingdom is split in half. They're captured. Then eventually Judah is captured. Now all of Israel is in captivity. And then they live in captivity for about 70, 75, 80 years. And then they rebuild Israel. And then they lose it again to Israel. Uh, to other world forces. And then that's basically the end of the Old Testament is we rebuilt, the, we rebuilt Israel. This is great. And then there's what we call the intertestamental period. And then we're starting into uh, the New Testament. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so where is this being written? Well, um, let's see. Oops. Let's see here. Can I, can I get... The, oh, look at this. I'm trying out new technology today. And uh, I'm hoping that it, oh, look, guys, look at that. It's a spotlight. So where in the text are we talking? We're, talk, we're at the spot of losing the promised land. So it's either just as they lost it at the, at the very beginning part of, of being completely captured. These people are writing in that period, in that, in that, um, in that exile period. So why is the world behind the text significant to us as we approach today's passage? Well, if the world behind the text is a world where the authors are captives, okay? So their, their whole way of life has been taken from them. They live in Babylon. And those who stay behind in Israel, those people, are, uh, they're under Babylon's thumb. They aren't allowed to do anything without Babylon's say-so, Okay? And so so when you're when you're occupied when you're when you're pulled out of your country like that you have two basic questions and you'll find that first and second kings is obsessed with these two questions. In fact a whole bunch of the old testament is obsessed with these two questions. The two questions are this. One, how did we lose the promised land that was given to us? What happened? Why? Do we lose it? And then the second is, if we ever rebuild, what do we need to do differently so we don't lose it again? Does that make sense? Okay, so those are the two questions. And you're going to see in today's story that uh, these two questions are going to wind up being significant for us. Okay, so now let's talk about the world of the text. The authors of First and Second Kings suggest that you have at least two other books sitting on your desk while you're reading this one. Okay? And those two other books are the Book of the Annals of the Kings of Judah, really snap and title, and then the Acts of Solomon, okay? And, and they're saying this because any parts of the story that they want to rush over or skip even uh, are covered in those other two books. And they tell you, take a look at those other two books. They say it in these books that you should do that. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have either of those books. They're lost to history. So when we look at First and Second Kings, we have to proceed carefully because the authors intended us to have other books as reference books that we don't have anymore. Okay? So a little archaeological mystery to begin today's story. Okay, so... Uh story of First and Second Kings covers a 400-year period of Israel's history, beginning with David's end, reign and ending with the exile. And this is kind of what it looks like here. Um, I'm sure you can all read that. Um, don't tell Joe that I cracked the spine of one of his books to scan it on a scanner, okay? Uh, not that he cares anymore, but just, I just don't, sorry, was that too soon? Uh, this is not what you do with books, kids. Don't do this to books. But I did. Um, so this is the chronology. You've got uh, up here, you've got the United Kingdom. So that's just David and Solomon. And then basically Solomon's kids crack it in half. And you've got Judah and Israel. Okay? So Israel gets wiped out first. And that's where we get... Uh, this is where Elijah and Elisha serve. And all that we're focused on in this series is just these two folks, okay? And then the story continues. So you've got, you've got kings of Judah, and you've got kings of Israel. And you can see that we're, we're talking about 1010 10 to, uh, I keep doing that, 1010 10 to about 580. Remember, we count down backwards when we're talking about BC. And then you've got all the other kings and all of the other prophets. And you'll see there's sort of a gap there. And then the whole bunch of prophets like Joel and Jonah and Amos and Hosea. You know, all the big the big hits, heavy hitters. They show up there very close to the end. And then Jeremiah closes the show out. Okay, so now that we've located ourselves in the bigger picture, we're, 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 we're getting situated inside the text. What is the actual story? Well, instead of me reading it to you, I'm just going to tell it to you. Okay with that? Trust me, this is in the Bible. If you want, you can read it on on your way home. It doesn't take long. But Naaman is this guy, okay? He's a a decorated general in Syria, all right? And unbeknownst to Naaman, God has been giving him victory in battle. And Naaman's star is on the rise. He is well-respected He draws a lot of water. He's got a lot of political influence until one day he gets a skin disease and it's super gross. And no one wants to hang out with him. And he's bummed out by having, you know, I don't know what the skin disease is. Sometimes the Bible translates it as leprosy. It isn't just leprosy. It it could be anything. It's a broad word and it could be anything. Um, so, you know, insert your favorite skin disease in here, and 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 you can go with that. All right, you you got everyone has a favorite, right? Okay. So, uh, Naaman is uh, is going to all the doctors, and he's trying to get healed of the skin disease, and none of the spiritual healers or the doctors uh, in in all of Syria can heal his skin disease, and he's really really rotted out about this, okay? And people are also grossed out by it too. Um, Did I mention it was gross? Okay. And uh, so a young Israelite girl who got captured in a little skirmish somewhere uh, between Syria and Israel, she's serving in Naaman's house. And she says, I know a prophet in Samaria, so that's the kingdom of Israel, okay, remember the kingdom's divided, Judah and Israel. In Israel, I know a prophet who can heal your skin disease. And uh, Naaman's uh, wife hears this and she talks to her husband and then her husband goes to the king and says, look, I'd like to try my chances in Israel and I would like to see if if this prophet person can, can heal me. So the king of Syria writes him a nice little letter saying, please heal my friend's skin disease. It's super gross. And um, here's a lot of money uh, and clothes and stuff. And uh, uh, so, so we, want you to, we want you to take care of them. So Naaman goes with this military entourage. He's got chariots and, and all kinds of, of hardware. And he's got a small fortune in gold and silver, a letter, and a whole bunch of changes of clothes. And he goes straight to the king of Israel, and he hands them the letter. And the king of Israel is like, I've had it. This is a trick. Like, can I kill people and then bring them back together? Why are people coming to me with their skin diseases? I'm not Dr. Phil, you know, because Dr. Phil can't do much about skin diseases either. Um, it's not that kind of doctor, kids. That's all I'm, all I'm trying to say. Go to the right kind of doctor. That's all I'm trying to say. And so, so he freaks out. And he's like, I, I know what this is. It's a trick. The guy has given me an impossible task. And if I fail at that task, he's going to attack me. So, that, so the king is ripping his clothes. He's freaking out. And he's convinced this is prelude to war. So then Elisha, he hears that the king is uh, having a little hissy fit. And so he says, send, send this guy to me. I'll take care of business. So then uh, Naaman shows up at Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even go out to see him. He sends his servant, and the servant goes to Naaman and says, all right, go have a bath. See you later. And uh, the guy, Naaman, is really, really angry. Because he was hoping that Elisha would at least make an in-person visit, and you know, wave his hands around in a magical manner and, like, do some prophet stuff. Instead of making me go take a dip in your crummy little river, the Jordan, we've got way better rivers back where I am from. Why am I doing this thing? So Naaman is angry, and he he drives away. And his servants are saying, all right, if... This prophet guy had said to do something really hard, you probably would have done it. So why not try the simple thing? Dip yourself in the river seven times, just like he said, and see what happens. Well, Naaman says, fine, I will do that. So they pull over to the side of the Jordan. He dips himself in the river seven times, and wouldn't you know it, his skin is as smooth as a baby's butt. That's what the Bible says. Look it up. And, and he's like, holy smokes, that worked. And, and, and he, is, he is, uh, he's having a crisis experience. Because everything he thought he knew about the spiritual world is being flipped on its head. So Naaman is like, who is this Yahweh person? I can tell that there are no gods beside Yahweh. Because none of the gods could heal me. And the, this prophet guy didn't have to wave his arms around in a magical manner. He didn't have to do some kind of big fancy thing. I just basically had a bath in the river, dipped myself seven times, and now check out my skin, everybody. And so he immediately goes back to Naaman's house, and he says, uh, listen, I... And, um, I love what you had said. I'm, I'm healed. Here's all the fortune. I know you didn't earn it. I know you you just shuffled me off. God did this. But I want to give you all the fortune that I brought with me, all the changes of clothes. And Elisha basically says, uh, No thanks. Uh, I serve God. That's payment enough. Take care now. Toodaloo. And, and Naaman says, Wait a second. You don't even want money? Like, what kind of prophet are you? All the prophets I know, they want money. This is how they do their thing. Elisha says, no, I don't, I don't need that. He says, well, okay. Clearly you serve a God that I don't understand. I need you to do something for me, Elisha. He says, I'm going to go back to Syria and probably within days, I'm going to have to serve in the shrine with uh, Rimmon, our God. And I, I believe in Yahweh, and I want to follow Yahweh, but I won't be able to get out of having to serve in this shrine. Will Yahweh forgive me for, uh, for going into the shrine of this other God, this false God? And uh, Elisha says, you'll be fine. It's good. Go on now. Get. And so Naaman gets. And then, hates I. That's remember we heard about him. Did you talk about him? Yeah, yeah. You guys remember her talking about him? Okay. This guy is a rotter, of a servant. Okay. So he goes and he's like, you can't let a fortune just drift on by you. And so Gehazi goes and he tracks down Naaman and he says, oh 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 oh, something came up, Elisha. Uh, uh, had some, some guests from one other areas of the kingdom. Some of his prophet buddies came over. They needed some help. Could we have like, a you know, let's say, could you give me 150000 and, you know, a couple pairs of underwear, some t-shirts, whatever they need. And uh, so Naaman is like, this is incredible. Of course I want to help. Take 300000 and takes a pair of Adidas gazelles and a really nice pair of Calvin Kleins. And uh, so Gehetsai takes the stuff, and he takes it back to his house for safekeeping. Okay? And then he goes back to Elisha's place, and Elisha's like, hey, where you been, Gehetsai? And he's like, I've been here the whole time. What are you talking about? And Elisha's like, you know I'm a prophet, right, you dummy? didn't you know that my heart went with you? Like, I know what you've been up to. God told on you. I know what happened. And then uh, Gehazi says, oh, right, the prophet thing. And, and, um, and uh, so, so Elisha says, the skin disease that stuck to Naaman is now going to stick to you. And there's going to be no relief in sight, and seen, fin, as the French say. Okay? That is the story. Now, you can see that the story has a lot of contrasting characters in it. you got rich people in need, you've got poor people with answers and help, okay? Needy rich people, uh, well-heeled, or, or people who know how to help who are poor. you got people who are distant outsiders moving toward God, and you've got people who are basic total insiders, and they're drifting further and further from God. you got people like Naaman and Gehetsai who understands the power of God, but they don't understand God's character. So Gehazi, you have, you have Naaman who's starting to understand things about God, and Gehetsai who is starting to forget things about God, maybe on purpose even. People like Elisha and and the little slave girl who understand both God's power and God's character, she knows that God is gracious and will heal even the enemies of Israel. And you got this powerful king who feels totally powerless. And it never occurs to him even once to ask God for help. And you got people who who refuse money even when they could easily take it. And you got people who connive to take money that they didn't earn. One man rinses off a really horrible disease, and another man um, rolls in the filth and gets covered in that same disease. So, why would people, we're going back to the world behind the text here, why would people in the exile? select this story to ask, what is God doing? Well, remember, there are two questions. How did we lose the kingdom? And if we did rebuild the kingdom, what do we do so we don't lose it again? Okay, so that's their questions. So what would they learn from this story? Well, first, they would have noticed the slaves and the servants and the role that they were playing. That might not stick out to us, but it probably would have stood out to them. Because that's who they are in their own story. And they're noticing that uh, young little Israeli girl. And they're noticing Naaman's servants. And they're saying, God is up to things. And if I want to communicate the truth of God, I have to do it from the bottom up. I have to serve up. I don't get to call the shots. And it's really interesting how these people were able to navigate that world. So when I'm called upon in this exile, uh, and I want to be on board with what God is doing, I need to learn from that little girl and from those slaves how to do my job, how to take my place in this society where I'm not in charge. Second, they would notice the king of Israel. Like many before him and many after him, did not think to consult God. These kings did not recognize God's power, and they kept, uh, that was the key to them losing the nation. And then, third, they would have noticed that Yahweh is different from other gods, and the ways of Yahweh's servants are different than the other servants of other gods. The servants of Yahweh are humble people. They are shaped by the character of God. Their use of power is humble. Their way of life is humble. And they don't make a big show of things. So they're not a prophet for the prophet. See what I did there? They're not a prophet for the prophet. They're a prophet because they love God. It goes well beyond being afraid of God. It goes well beyond using God because God has power, to actually loving God and being shaped by that encounter with God. So that's what makes those servants different. And you see this difference in the assumptions that the King Aram of Syria and Naaman had. They expected a very expensive, very showy, very highfalutin affair. They expected a prophet who would treat God like a genie in a bottle. You rub the lamp, the genie has to do what you want. They were not prepared for a God that has a mind of his own and a God who is owned by no one. And then finally, they would have noticed that unlike the king of Israel, Gehazi recognized God's power, but he didn't recognize God's character. And wanted the power, but didn't care for all the humble, be humble, service-type stuff. He wanted, really, to serve a better god like Rimmon, or one of the other gods around them. And that was always part of what was going on in Israel. Their hearts were far from God. So, what they would have taken from that is that they would they were going to say. So if we rebuild Israel, we need to do things differently. We need to make Yahweh central to our way of life, not an add-on on the side, not someone we ignore or go to when we're problem when we're in trouble, but but we need to make Yahweh central to our way of life. If we want to rebuild this and not lose it, Yahweh has to be at the center, not just of our political life, but of our own hearts. Yahweh has to shape us into the kind of people that that can hold on to a kingdom of God. So that's what they would have taken from this story. Now, let's talk about everyone's favorite, the world in front of the text. So, this story has come to you on the 8th of August, 2021, a little past. We're at like 10.55 right now. So you've just heard this story, and you've just had the week you've had, and we've just had the news cycle this week that we've had. So how is this story hitting you this morning? And I want you just to take a moment to think about that. How did you arrive at church today? Where are you at in your heart and in your soul? You okay? Are you stressed out? Are you thinking about a grocery list or Whether you forgot to turn the oven off or whatever you got to do, pack for camping or whatever, Theo. What characters or actions are you noticing? And what do you think God's invitation to you might be from this story as it lands right in the middle of the story you're currently living? Do you identify with that young girl at the beginning? Or perhaps what in Naaman's, Naaman's servants? Do you find yourself needing to speak up to the people around you? Do you need to gently encourage them to be open to what God is doing in their lives? Do you have somebody in your life that you are currently serving? And maybe needing to serve spiritually? If that's you this morning, then I'm asking you, what is God's invitation to you? If that's what you noticed. Spend some time thinking about that. Do you identify with Naaman? Are you the kind of person that God has been invisible to for a very long time? Even though you need God's help, are you open now to being surprised by God? Are you open to doing the things, maybe even the humbling things, that God wants you to do? is that in front of you today. And if that's the case then what is God's invitation to you in the middle of that? That's what I want you asking. Do you maybe identify with the king of Israel? How have you been going along in your life in self-sufficiency mode? Have you cut yourself off from the possibility that God has the power to help? That God has something to do with what you're going through. If that's who you are and you're facing life alone and God needs to get your attention, what is the invitation for you in the middle of that? Or maybe you identify with Gehetzai. Are you tempted to take by force something that God may give to you gladly? Do you feel like you need to take matters into your own hands? Because if I don't, no one will. If that's where you're at today, and you're going to take by force something that God may give to you voluntarily and gladly, what is God's invitation to you today? And we can stretch this out. Beyond just us as individuals. Let's think about ourselves as a church. Are we Lakeview Church, like the nation of Israel? God has made Himself known to us, God has sent us the prophets, He's established our way of life. And as a result, are we drawing closer to God or are we drifting farther apart? We need a new leader. What kinds of questions do we need to ask ourselves as we ask that question? Are we ready for the kind of leadership that God wants to give us? Or are we going to choose someone who maybe understands the power of God, but not the character of God? Do we have a history of picking leaders who do that kind of thing? And if that's the case, and I'm not saying it is, but if it's the case, Then, what is God's invitation to us as a church community? I know, of course, you live in a city or a province and and a nation, and where is God at work among us? And what diseases does God want to heal? And what role might we have to play in the healing of those diseases? So, that is the world behind the text, the world of the text and the world in front of the text. And all the while, God is speaking to you. God is trying to get your attention. He wants you to take this story, and He wants it to you to use it to live your life. So we're just going to take a moment here as the band comes up to play, and return thanks to God, and consider and let land in us what it is that God wants to communicate.